You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. We have finally gotten around to publishing this episode about early allergen introduction, which was recorded in the summer of 2021. Despite it being old, the information is still very accurate, so we thought it was A-OK to publish. I'm actually not in this episode. Dr. G talks to Mina Lely, the founder of Little Mixins, and Dr. Katie Marks Kogan, the head allergist at Ready Set Food. Both of those companies offer simple solutions for parents to introduce allergens into their baby's diets, which you will find out can actually be quite hard. Dr. G and her guests cover why the protocol of introducing food allergens to a baby has changed so drastically, they unpack the studies that made that change happen, and they also talk about which babies should be getting allergens early into their diet. It's a super interesting episode because it goes to show how much things can change in such a small time. I hope you enjoy just as much as I did. Again, thanks for having us today on this on your show. It's really awesome to be here. Little Mixins is an idea that came to me because this is actually my third medical startup company. And just like the other two, the principle here is that New science can come out, but if patients don't have a way to actually do what doctors have learned is better for them, no good will come of it. In one of my past companies, we, you know, we had a new learning in, in osteoarthritis or in actually hospital medicine practice. But for what I found with my younger son, when I was trying to actually implement with the new rules around early allergen introduction, make sure you're doing multiple foods, make sure it's three times a week, make sure you're getting two grams of protein into every serving. This was almost impossible for two working parents to do. And that's really what Little Mixins was about. And why I'm so passionate about this is because we have the opportunity to save hundreds of thousands of children a year from developing food allergies. And we need to give parents a practical way to do that. Otherwise, we're just, you know, condemning all these children to being sick. Absolutely. And Katie, what is your, what was your story? Yes. Well, that was, uh, that was great. I mean, all thank you for having me on today. I am really excited to be here. I'm excited that you're doing a show on food allergies and specifically early allergen introduction, which is so important just to give you my story briefly, similar to me actually. So I had my first child, my son in May of 2015 And prior to that, in my allergy practice, I had really been advocating for early allergen introduction because we did have some science to back it up. And so then when I had my son, who was actually born a few months after the famous LEAP trial came out, I had even more motivation to do early allergen introduction in a really specific way. And so similarly to Manal, I tried to do it and introduce each allergen in the right amounts. And it was really, really difficult. I had a working allergist. My husband was working. We had multiple caregivers. My son wasn't necessarily eating perfectly at five and six months of age, as uh, most babies are not really eating that well at that point. And so when my good friend, Andy Leitner, called me, he's a physician as well. And unfortunately, he called me after his son had been diagnosed with multiple severe food allergies. And he had thought to himself is there a way that I could have helped 
prevent these food allergies in my son and sort of thought, well, my son wasn't ready to be to eat solid food at five months or six months when, you know, a lot of babies are introduced and he just wasn't ready to eat it, you know, consistently. He thought, you know, is there a way we could have gotten these allergens into my son earlier? And that's where he sort of came up with this. What if we what if we put it in a bottle? And so got together and created this product in a very science-driven, evidence-based way to help make it possible, to help make it easy, to help make it safe for families to introduce the most common allergenic foods to their babies so that we really could help prevent food allergy, improve public health. As we all mentioned, we could have the potential to save up to 200,000 babies from developing a food allergy per year. And we also have the potential to really decrease this sort of epidemic of, of food allergy that we've seen with rising food allergy prevalence over the last few decades. Amazing. So very similar stories, just pain points that you both noticed as parents and delved into actually creating a product that could help parents. And so now why don't we all just discuss what does early food introduction actually mean? And then let's go into the studies. And so there's a bunch of studies that led to this development of early food introduction is actually the way to go versus what was done back in 2010, which was of food avoidance. And so let's talk a little bit about the history and let's start with the first question. What is early food introduction? When we say early food introduction, I always like to add another word in there, sustained. So early and sustained food introduction, because the concept really isn't to only introduce, right? It's to keep it in the diet because we know that by doing that, we have the potential to prevent food allergies. And so really the concept is that we have this window of opportunity in a baby's life, in an infant's life, really, where we think that it's possible to sort of mold the immune system towards tolerance and away from allergy. And by exposing them to these proteins and these allergenic foods, we can do that. And so, like I mentioned, we have to do introduction. So we have to expose babies to these foods early on in life. And then we have to continue exposure so that we can have that benefit of prevention. Let's start with reviewing the LEAP study, the LEAP ON study. Yeah, sure. As Katie was saying about, you know, her son born right after the leaf study, my son who has all his food allergies, we, our first big ER visit was one week before the leaf study came out in New England Journal of Medicine. And as someone who'd worked as a you know, director or in clinical affairs for a while, I was reading these things and I was so furious. I was furious that, um, you know, one week later we find out that I've done it all wrong. And so what the leaf study did, it was What's amazing about it is because in pediatrics, it's really hard to do randomized controlled trials, but they did that. They did a randomized controlled study where half the babies were told to do one thing, which was eat peanuts in a certain regimen three, to, you know, three times a week, and the other half of the babies were told not to. And then they, at various time points, but really at five years, they looked at that data and said, what was the prevalence of food allergies, peanut allergies specifically, between the two groups? And they found basically an 80% reduction in the rate of peanut allergy between the two groups if babies ate peanut early and often. And I agree with what Katie was saying about the sustained being a really important part of that. 
the big interesting finding of it was that they looked at babies who are considered quote unquote high risk, right? So they had babies who were had severe eczema or already had a known egg allergy. And they even looked at whether the babies were already sensitized to peanut. So even the babies who were sensitized to peanut had a huge risk reduction in the rate of peanut allergy because of eating the peanuts early. And that was a really counterintuitive, actually, finding for pediatricians at the time. But it set the stage. And that one study was what was the basis of the change in the AAP and the allergy associations and the NIAID guidelines on basically saying that now we actively want babies to eat peanuts early. The big criticism that came out of the LEAP study was, well, what do I do with this information if you're talking about high-risk children? Because when you look at infants at that age, you know, it's like less than 1% of them are considered high-risk for a food allergy, right? Less than 1% have severe eczema and or egg allergy. And so what about the other 99%? And I know we'll get to future studies like the child study and eat study that look at other ones, but I think that's the single biggest criticism of the LEAP study. And then from there, because they had all this information, they did the leap on, right? So they looked at, well, what happens if we, the babies who we told to not eat peanuts for the first 12 months of their life, what if we then have them eat peanuts? And we control them again against a different group of kids that isn't eating peanuts. Same thing, um, that if, they, if you start eating peanuts, the sooner is the better. It's basically the big takeaway. The sooner the better, you want to eat enough. And, and all of this data was actually replicated in a big study in Canada uh, called the Child Study, where they did the same thing. They found a 4x reduction in the rate of peanut allergy if you started it at six months versus 12 months, and a 7x reduction in the rate of peanut allergy if you started at six months versus 18 months, right? So same findings, peanut allergy, globally, you can prevent it to a large extent if, the, if babies eat it early and often, and the sooner the better. One interesting thing about the LEAF study is what they started anywhere between four and 11 months old. So really, they were starting with babies when they were ready for solid foods, and um, incorporating it immediately into their diet as they started solids. So I don't, I don't think parents should freak out if it's f- their baby's four months old or five months old or six months old and they haven't started peanuts yet. Because what we see is, is as Dr. Mark Scogan said, that the, you know, you have this window of opportunity and you really want to get in that window of opportunity. Um, but earlier is better than later. So that was excellent summary. I have just a few points to add. With regard to the four to 11 month window, that is true. That is, you know, the window they started. It is interesting to note that I think LEAP had to screen out about almost 10% of babies who already had an allergy prior to enrollment. We have to sort of take that also into consideration that starting earlier is better because many babies, even at the beginning of this study, already had an allergy. So that's one point. The other thing I always talk about with LEAP is they had this amazing outcome, right? I mean, this is just like landmark life-changing, but it wasn't that easy to get these parents to feed their babies peanut, specifically Bamba, right? So most of the kids had Bamba, which are the famous peanut puffs that were actually made famous by this trial, um, and they're delicious. But a lot of babies aren't necessarily great eaters. And so in terms of compliance, the LEAP trial required an average of 104 phone calls to each family in order to get them to adhere. So we're not on a daily basis in terms of practicality. That's not something that we're doing with our family in terms of making sure that they are really feeding these foods. So it had a great adherence rate, but a lot of that was due to the continued communication. And then the other thing is one of the things that I tell parents, even though the data has changed and the recommendations have changed, is 
it's not their fault. Everybody has that feeling. Me, no, you said you had that feeling. Like what? And I, I really try to educate parents and say, look, back in 2000, when the American Academy of Pediatrics put out their recommendations for allergenic food avoidance, they thought, you know, they were going on the best data that they had at the time. It was only observational. Thought so there was really a thinking that, you know, delaying the introduction of milk and egg and peanuts and tree nuts could be beneficial. Now. Since 2000, observational came, data came out. They, they reversed their guidelines in 2008, saying that food avoidance will not prevent food allergy. And then obviously, this is what we're talking about, since that time, we've had multiple randomized controlled trials, which are the best trials in science, to show us that actually feeding early is better and that can be preventative. And so, yes, the guidelines have totally flipped, but... That's, that's no one's fault. I mean, babies will still get food allergies even if we do early food introduction. So it's no one's fault. We just have, as with all medicine, we just, with time, we learn more. And so now we have really great science to help us and to really help confirm our recommendations. It's no one's fault, right? So we can just make it better. Absolutely. And I think that one thing that you mentioned is something that parents are probably going to hone in on is that even if we do everything right, your child may still develop a food allergy. And so do one of you guys want to comment on what you guys mean by that? Sure, I can start. We don't know exactly when babies develop food allergies, right? We know that they're not born with them. So babies are not born with food allergies, but there are multiple factors we think that combine and once those factors combine in a certain way, so there are different scientific ideas behind why that happens. The hygiene hypothesis, which is are babies exposed to the right germs early enough and frequently enough? And are we, is our society too clean? Is that why allergies are increasing? That's one of the, the ideas. There's also something made famous by Gideon Lack, who's the senior author of the LEAP study called the dual allergen hypothesis, which basically tells us that if babies are exposed to sort of low doses of allergenic protein through their skin barrier, so in eczematous babies, eczema is a itchy red skin rash in, in babies who basically have a defective barrier in their skin. The bar you know, our skin is there to sort of protect us from the outside world. And so when you have eczema, you get irritants and allergens that can get in there and activate the immune system. And so if babies with eczema are exposed to food allergens through their skin and not through their digestive tract, not eating it, then they are more likely to develop allergy to that specific food rather than tolerance. So there's that idea. There's, there's theories about vitamin D and that vitamin D deficiency may play a role in food allergy development. In addition, just to mention, there is also a genetic component, right? So family history does play a role, but it's not the only thing. We know that more than 50% of babies born with a food allergy today do not have a direct family member with a food allergy. So genetics are not the only thing involved. It's what we think is it's all of these things. It's all of these ideas. And you can put them together and say that if they're not exposed to the right microbes and they're not eating it and maybe their vitamin D is low and have these certain genetics, all of these things together, then they might go on to develop food allergy. 
but some things might be stronger than others. Their genes might be stronger. So even if you do all these other things, they still might get a food allergy. So again, we have all this data and science and knowledge. And now we have a great, you know, great recommendations for products and even ideas for how to feed and get these foods in and recipes and things like that. But it, it doesn't matter. And so that is a really good, I'm glad that we're, you know, focusing on that point, Pyle. That is important for people to understand. Yeah, and Courtney and I have discussed the theories with the eczema and the skin barrier and how important that is to maintain a good skin barrier for kids with eczema, especially for their potential for future development for food allergies. So I'm glad that we're reviewing that again because food allergies are just such a big topic for us on our podcast. And so it's just important to keep kind of reiterating some of these concepts, how important all of this is put together. And so there isn't just one thing that we can do to prevent it. And we just actually had a conversation about pregnancy and what you can do during pregnancy to decrease your child's potential risk of food allergies, which there's nothing, <laughs> you know, there's really nothing that we know of that could prevent food allergy in my future child, you know, even though I'm very atopic. And so I'm very worried about my child having eczema and then inadvertently getting exposed to foods through the skin and then getting allergies. There's just so many things that I worry about, but I'm glad we reviewed all of that. Meenal, did you have anything to add on to those concepts? No, I mean, I think that that feeling will never really totally go away of feeling like it was your fault. And I can say with my son, all the issues that were brought up were really not a concern in, in our family. But food early allergen introduction is one thing that people can control, right? In the same way that you can control some of the elements of your uh, pregnancy or other things that you you control everything you can. And that's it. That's the best you can do for your your child. And I think early allergen introduction and making that possible for everyone gives them a way to know that they did everything that they could do. Great points, Minal, Katie, and let's cover the EAT trial. So the inquiring about tolerance study. Well, talking about the EAT study, I think is important to realize that they're trying to then build from the LEAP study, right? So the EAT study said, okay, LEAP looked at peanut, let's look at multiple allergens. Let's talk about six different allergens. And LEAP did only high-risk children, so now let's look at a general population in the UK. And they did that same randomized controlled study, right? But the thing they found there was, I think, two big things is that they saw risk reduction of aller food allergies only in some allergens, not all of them, unfortunately, and there's still more to learn there. The other big thing they learned is that the risk reduction only came if parents followed the protocol of the study. So they ha actually ate a certain amount of the protein every week, were consistent about it. And I know Katie and I have harped on this point a lot, but I think it, it really can't be oversold, which is that it's like anything else in medicine, right? It's like if somebody says, well, exercise works and you exercise once, well, you're not getting any of the benefit, right? <laughs> if you have to keep up with it to get sort of the benefit that, that you want. And, and that's the same here is that you really have to cover that entire window. Really interestingly, the EAT study group published in December of 2019 about what did they learn? And there, it was a paper about the challenges experienced with sustained introduction. And the three things that they mentioned were that Children often refuse the foods, so we have to find ways to make it easy for them to eat them. The parents, interestingly, still had this ongoing fear. Even after the 10th exposure, the two months in, they were still worried that their children might have a reaction, were confused about what that looks like. And I like the way they put it, the caregiver capacity to persist was, was compromised, right? We're just basically meaning that parents found it really freaking hard to do. And I think this is what's really nice about this, at least each study was that it was so real world in many ways. 
giving your kid a diverse diet from the beginning, can I protect them against everything? And we had some wins, reduction in peanut and egg, some other not so much wins against like wheat and shellfish and things like that. Yeah, the EAT study was really another landmark trial because it was done in the general population. Because when you look at LEAP, you're like, okay, well, if you can do the early allergen introduction in high-risk babies, what does that mean for the general population? And so this study really helps sort of solidify that early and sustained allergen introduction should be for every single baby. This is not just something if you know, if you have food allergies in the family or if you have eczema, this should be for everybody. We should all be talking about this. Pediatricians should be discussing it at the early visits leading up to allergen and food introduction. The other thing that's interesting about the study is breastfeeding was not impacted. So these were, you know, general population and half the kids were breastfed only during this food introduction period and breastfeeding was not impacted. So you can do early allergen introduction alongside breastfeeding. You know, breastfeeding is fantastic. It brings so many benefits for the baby, but, you know, it's not been shown, as you were saying, Kyle, there's nothing you can do for your baby. Breastfeeding has not been shown to prevent food allergies. If mom eats something and then exposes baby through breast milk, that has not been shown to prevent food allergies. So we have to have other exposure. But the good news is that with these hundreds of families, the moms did not notice any decrease in baby's willingness to breastfeed, even during introduction. It's also another, you know, Mino mentioned it, but compliance in this study was really poor, which is why we use the results from the per protocol analysis rather than the intention to treat, meaning the people that actually complied. There was a less than 50% of the families in the EAT trial could actually feed their babies multiple foods, multiple times a week, right? Because it's really hard to do, as we all know. I think those, in my mind, are the big takeaways. Great. And then there was the petite, which is the introduction of the heated egg. That's just heated egg in a stepwise manner, along with aggressive eczema treatment. They found it to be safe and a good way to uh, reduce risk in high-risk infants. I know that, Meenal, you guys definitely have the heated egg is that something that um, Ready Set Food is doing too with the heated egg? Our egg is organic cooked egg powder, and actually our dose is based exactly on the petite trial. We used leap, eat, and teat in order to make the product. Our dosing is based on those trials. The allergens, the powders that are used in Ready Set Food are based exactly from those trials. We really wanted to make sure that we could do it in the best way possible in terms of science. So this is a very important study. Yeah, and I think Minal's products are also go off of the studies. And I like both of your websites because they really go into all of the studies, which I really appreciate in a nice way for parents to understand the background. So we'll definitely link up to both of those websites. One of the things that Courtney really wanted us to talk about is just reviewing the guidelines that exist out there that I think parents look at and also the fear factor of introduction, which I think one of you guys mentioned early on. So let's talk first about the guidelines. Yeah, so I think right now there's national guidelines on early allergen introduction and there's multiple international guidelines. They all are a little bit different, but I think do agree on a few major points, which is to start early at around four months of age, to continue exposure for many months, and that feeding allergens to infants is safe. 
So we have the 2017 when the NIH and the American Academy of Pediatrics and all the, the major allergy societies came out with guidelines, which actually very soon, in fact, possibly this summer, new guidelines or an addendum change to those guidelines is going to be published and most likely include egg uh, along with peanut, which will be wonderful. And I think screening will be discussed. Currently, you have to screen severe eczema or egg allergy prior to peanut introduction. But I think that'll be something that's discussed as well. So and then you have Australian guidelines, the British Society of Allergy, the Canadian Society, all of these guidelines about early and sustained allergen introduction agree on those main points. And going back to 2017, the FDA even sort of followed suit after the NIH came out with their guidelines and basically created their first ever qualified health claim, basically affirming that peanut introduction early on in infancy can prevent peanut allergy. So that was huge. And then more recently, we actually lobbied the USDA. They are addending their, their dietary guidelines in children. And we helped lobby. And Jonathan Spurgle, who is the head of um, allergy over at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, he and he's an expert in food allergy. He helped streamline and get 13 other the top food allergy experts in the country all sign a letter that was submitted to the USDA so that they would include a statement about early and sustained allergy introduction in their new guidelines. And that was accepted. They will be including that. So that was a really big win. Part of what I do in my practice, just try to spread awareness and educate. And now that we also have, you know, the United States government putting these recommendations out to everyone. It's just really wonderful. It's such a nice feeling. Our mission is really accelerating and that's really exciting. So I think that is the main sort of summary of the guidelines. What you see from that is, you know, the guidelines came out in 2017 and it always takes a while for it to be sort of generally accepted, right? And what's been fascinating to watch is as it's now three years later, we're seeing more and more of the sort of everyday publications, the what to expect when you're expecting, like that kind of thing, actually adopting those guidelines into how they talk about it. And that's, of course, what to expect when you're expecting is not a pediatric group, right? <laughs> but that shows you how it kind of filters down. And you know, we're excited about the, the shift in the new dietary guidelines that was mentioned that I think those are not going to come out, unfortunately, until 2025 if I'm not mistaken, but that'll be good for the last level of it is, is access, right? Because I think, again, I always come back to the issue of, of ability to follow through, right? It's awesome. It's like, it's like if we said we wanted to have a vaccine for measles, but then we didn't make it affordable and we didn't make it available to everyone as part of their well visit. So I'm really looking forward to what I hope to see is it becomes part of like the Bright Futures guidance with the AAP where they, where every pediatrician is regularly speaking about it in the same way they're regularly speaking about vaccinations and other, other parts of infant development. And that we get to a place where Medicaid is able to cover some of, you know, some of these foods or add it to WIC programs and things like that. Because that's really where we can't have it be that it's a medicine that's only available to half the country or a quarter, you know, 10% of the country, right? We need to create products that are accessible to everybody uh, or options that are accessible to everybody. And that's, um, I think with the USDA shift, that's where we'll really start to see that happening. And that's an exciting time for everyone. I'm, yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because one of the things that we're, we're focused on that um, a lot of what we do, one of the things we're doing is we've actually partnered with Advocate Aurora 
which is the ninth largest health system in the U.S. in terms of babies per year. I think they have about 36,000 babies per year. And we've partnered with them in order to implement education and awareness of early allergen introduction in their pediatrician network. So, you know, we're super excited about that. We've also been trying to talk to some of the major insurance companies to, to think about getting it as a benefit because they know that when you're thinking about prevention, if you're diagnosed with food allergies, studies have shown that it costs, I think, around little over $4,000 a year per child diagnosed with a food allergy. And that's just lost labor and special diets and medical appointments. And, you know, in reality, it might actually be much more than that per family. And also the social costs, like there's so many different things involved, right? So I think, as you mentioned, now that we have all of these other things sort of following suit and understanding the effect that it can have, they are looking into how it can benefit their customers and their and their patients and how we can really all try to end the epidemic. Yeah, actually, we talked to Emily Brown from the Food Equality Initiative on our podcast, and this was a really important topic and talked about the WIC program a lot with her initiative and everything that they're trying to do with their organization. But it is super important to be able to make this available and with insurance so that families that don't have the ability to get all of these specialty items and foods. And so, yeah, I hope that with all of your initiatives, both of you, that we're able to get to that place as physicians where we can just say, you know what, I'm going to prescribe this for you. And let's get this going for your baby and every baby. And I think one other thing that I'd really like to touch on is that if your child has eczema, are they an allergic kid? Or, you know, is their eczema allergic? Or is their eczema non-allergic? Yeah, that's a good point. So I do this every day. <laughs> this is like all I, you know, talk about so much with so many of my patients. Your your statement about how it, you know, find eczema, find out if it's allergic or non-allergic. So here here's what I say about eczema is eczema is a skin disorder. Okay. It is not caused by an allergy, by a food allergy, right? It's caused by genetics and all the other things that come together and then baby gets eczema, right? And so they have a defect in their skin barrier and that allows allergens and irritants and other things to affect their skin. What we know is that sort of back in the day when we used to have eczema babies, you know, tested to multiple, multiple foods, whether through the blood or through the skin, that that's not really the way we should be evaluating them. We should, these babies, if you have eczema, you have about a 30% chance in general of developing a food allergy. And if you have severe eczema, it's much, much higher than that. So these are definitely the babies that should be evaluated. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we should be testing them. They should be, it's understandable. Pediatricians have so much on their plate and they have so much to talk about that, you know, they should, I think that they should really consider referring a baby with eczema to an allergist, and then the allergist can, you know, help educate that family on skincare maintenance, making sure we try to really protect that barrier, and then on early allergen introduction, because these are the babies where it's even more important, right? Some of these babies might already be sensitized. If there's a food that maybe mom is eating or that baby is eating that might be flaring their eczema, that might be even a more of a reason to feed them that food more often. 
and control the skin because these are the babies in the LEAP trial that were actually brought back from the brink of food allergy. If you're already sensitized in the LEAP trial and you do early peanut introduction, you have a major chance of, of not developing peanut allergy. Whereas if you don't eat peanuts in that trial and you have a positive skin test, then you are very likely to go on to develop peanut allergy. So, you know, there, there needs to be a lot of education about this awareness that if we have a baby with eczema, we need to make sure they get the right education about skincare maintenance and about food introduction. They, sh you know, take that fear out of it. And that's a lot of what I do with my patients and my families on a daily basis. Get that fear out of it and just understand that this is something that you can do and it's really important. And Minal and I want to make it easier, but you don't have to use a product. There are other ways to do it, but no matter what way you choose, it's really important. And so having that information is really important. I mean, I'm coming at this as not an allergist, of course, but I will say a couple things about this is one is my child did have eczema and I didn't necessarily, you know, we, we went to this, we see, went to see the allergist and it was interesting because the skin test told us that he was allergic to soy and he was not allergic to peanut and he was allergic to dairy and he was not allergic to egg. Well, guess what? It turned out like, literally this is what the test showed us. And it turned out that he was not allergic to soy or dairy, but he was in fact, and we ended up in the ER with egg and peanut. Right. So, and, and that's just because a lot is changing at that early time. And so I know a lot of allergists, just like Katie said, is there's a limited value necessarily to that testing. At the end of the day, the oral food challenge is the right test. So what we should have done is just start feeding the foods potentially and then finding out, well, that's effectively what we eventually did, right? And find out what the, the true scenario is. But I think actually that, that's one of my frustrations, unfortunately, with the LEAP study and the current AAP guidelines is this huge emphasis on the high-risk eczema and, well, known egg allergy, that's a, that's a thing. But the high risk, the high severity of eczema is, again, if you ask your average pediatrician, they couldn't define probably what severe eczema is for you. But actually, allergists know it when they see it, but the average pediatrician really can't tell the difference between moderate and severe. And it's really a small pool that's severe. So like, what do you do with that information? It's, it's almost like useless information. And we should just really stick to the idea that if a baby does not if they were a 0% chance this baby was going to develop a food allergy, then feeding them the foods early has also zero downside, right? There's no, they're just eating food. And so it should just be a universal intervention and stop stressing about the eczema and everything else. So that, that doesn't mean don't go see the allergist to help deal with your eczema. It means, which they definitely should do. It means that don't use that as the binding criteria for early allergen introduction. And what you really want to do is find out what the allergy is. So if you have the eczema and you think it's bad or you don't know, is it pediatrician? And which is what most pediatricians are doing now is like refer to the allergist and let them, let them kind of take it from there, which Katie, Katie just defined how they do that. But it's unfortunate that this feels like a, a place where more information doesn't necessarily help or more testing doesn't necessarily help. The good news is that the new guidelines will hopefully take screening out. This won't bother us <laughs> as much because I totally am in line with you that we should not have screening. It should, it should not be there. It's, it's too difficult. That being said, there should be good education and awareness to pediatricians so that they can, even if they don't know, then that's fine. Refer, and then someone else can help make that decision. Because along with all of this, we really just, we need to take that fear out. And so if they don't bring it up, 
and parents don't know what if this is mild or moderate or whatever, then they're not necessarily going to do it. So if they don't get it from their pediatrician, they're going to get it from mommy groups and forums. I mean, I, I did. I got a lot of my information with both of my kids from those things, even though I'm a physician. And so we want to make sure that that information is correct and that's not fear inducing and it's not leading them to get testing that they don't need, that won't be helpful, that will lead them down a totally crazy path of food challenges and all of these things in the office and all those things that come from testing. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www.itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.